All right, everybody, talk about it outdoors live from the Wilson studio. Once again, me and my main man, Nick, are ready to kick it up and kick it loud. We got a fun one for y'all tonight. I don't know that y'all heard of this guy, but I promise by the end of the episode, y'all going to know exactly who he is. He's coming to us with a story that's got a passion behind it and a raw emotional side to it. I promise you're going to love it. Y'all pull up a chair and set a while. You know, Nick, when we first started talking about what we wanted to do going into 2022, one of the names that kept coming up over and over in our mind was this gentleman that we've got with us here tonight. And I think it comes because of a great story we were able to watch over on YouTube and a great passion that we got to see a guy exude and and show. But I'm excited for tonight. It's been a long time coming. And uh, I want to thank you, you know, for for finding this and and seeing it as an opportunity to talk to somebody that I think he's going to fit right in with us. Absolutely, man. You know how early season gets. You get pumped up for deer season, and you start scrolling on YouTube, wherever you find your stuff at, and you and you come across these videos, and the, and this one stuck out. And I and right away, as soon as I finished it, I just forwarded it to everybody that I had basically on my phone and said, you guys have got to watch it. This is what deer hunting's about right here. This is the emotion that should come after killing whatever you want to take. And it doesn't matter if it has to be a Pope and Young, a Boone and Crockett, a Spike, a Doe. This is the emotion and the hard work. This is what, this is what it's all about. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing that stuck out for me was the story started a lot like ours do. You know, traveling from out of state and going to a place that you've got an opportunity to get to, and you put yourself in a position through hard work and dedication by basing all the knowledge that you've had over the years. And and this guy was able to do that. So, you know, for the last 10, 12 years, he spent himself as a uh, a cinematographer and and doing uh, produce work for a lot of shows that have been on the Outdoor and Pursuit channel. Um, he made his 2020 debut as a feature film uh, on the YouTube side of things with Deer Society. And I'd like to welcome to Talk About It Outdoors tonight, Mr. Andrew Cheslock with Sightline Productions. What's going on, boys? How you doing? Good, man. Better now that we're talking to you. Yes, sir. Well, I'm, I'm appreciated that you're having me on your podcast. It's pretty cool. I don't get to do this a whole lot. So if I ever have an opportunity, I try to snatch it up when I can. Yeah, and you you spent a lot of the season busy. I know we talked several times throughout the year in 2021. You know, we tried to line it up early on, and like everyone else, we're all busy trying to get out there and get one more knocked down. So we definitely appreciate you circling back up with us and let's get this thing going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, kind of. It was kind of a stretch there for a while because every you know we our gun season lasts quite a while. So I'm trying to beat bop around, trying to find another out of state spot to go hunt or like. We got another client over in Wisconsin, so they keep us pretty busy throughout the year. So they were like, all right, we got a big one on camera. You got to get over here. I'm like, all right, sounds good. We'll get over there. Lay, lay down some more TV stuff coming out on, on Sportsman's channel. And and then, uh, obviously, the guys in-house, like me and my two business partners, are trying to fill our tags, too. So, yeah, it gets kind of hectic towards the end there when, when, uh, when you're a few days out of season. Do you think that the the filming side for you over the years has has taken precedence over the hunting, and now you're coming back full circle with uh, with getting back into the grind for yourself? Yeah, like it it would be really weird if I actually went out to the deer woods and didn't have a camera. Like I probably wouldn't know what to do with do with myself. I think I might have done it once since I've been starting this crazy journey about 10, 12 years ago, and I felt absolutely naked. <laughs> like I, I did I didn't know what to do because it it it's not only a huge passion of mine, but it's, I really, in a way I almost do get paid to go hunting. Right. You know, I mean, not a lot of people get to be able to say to do that, you know, I mean, there's, 
there's quite a few, you know, Jim Shock here, you know, some of the guys from Bone Collector, you know, like that. But I'm just I'm just a little man. And yet here I am doing it, you know. I think that's the one thing, though, that we we hear more in this day and age, because there is an ability for people to be able to use equipment that's more, you know, friendly to the consumer. And it makes it where you you can go out and you can film and you can put it out. But when you consistently do it, that's where you start noticing, you, you know, an opportunity to do it for a full time. Yeah. Well, I, w- I will definitely say the biggest perk that I got going for myself, I'm, I don't got a girlfriend. I'm not married. I don't got any kids. I got I got no basically love life whatsoever. And I pretty much just dedicate my life 365 days out of the year to whitetails. There you go. That's why I, that's why he's where he's at right now. I wondered how you're staying in a camper in uh in Iowa when you're we chasing the you know the the public land dream buck and and how oh, yeah. I saw that pop up. I was like, boy, I, I mean, he I ain't got go- no girlfriend. I was going to ask about that pop up. Did you have that trail camera running on that pop up for for footage use or to make sure nobody was messing uh, was, with the camper? It was it was dual purpose. It was also so I could show a little bit of like the camp life and like what my setup was because yeah. a lot of guys like to see the DIY kind of like experience. But also I was also for, to run security too. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, I had I had backup bows. I had extra camo. I had extra gear lying around. And there's no way you can lock a pop up. That's right. <laughs> so and obviously I was the only one at the campsite, which I had showers like just out of the out of the frame to the right. So that's why I was there. And then they closed up by the time like I left on my first go around. So when I came back again, I'm like, shit, I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they winterized them. They went. Oh, yeah, they winterized them. Yep. Wow. So yeah, when I came back or the second go around, like it, I had to figure out something else, which no I got wonder, pretty lucky. <laughs> no wonder he was using the hell out of that face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every time I turned oh, around, yeah. he had the face. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. Well, and and I think that's the, the one thing that I want to, you know, Pause right there because that's a good yeah. starting point. And let's rewind all the way back uh, for a minute, Andrew. And, you know, tell right. everyone where you're where you're from and, and what, you know, kind of got you into the outdoors. Okay, gotcha. Actually, I was uh, born and raised in Austin, Minnesota, which where that is as far as Minnesota goes. Find Minneapolis, St. Paul, go just slightly a little bit north, northwest. And you'll find you'll find a bigger town called Maple Grove. Right next to its Oscar. I always refer to it as like the little potato village. So really, like I, I was born and raised up a city kid. Okay. You know, I, you know, I, you know, mom or dad go out to the mailbox to get the newspaper, or whatever, and you know, we're shimmering through each other's driveways. So I, I wasn't like born into the country life. I'm not a farm kid or whatever. But I'll tell you what, though, as soon as I fell in the woods, I never left. That's it. Yep. And then, so I graduated high school, 2010. And then I got accepted to, to Bemidji State University, which is like, if you're like an outdoor kid like myself and you like to hunt, you like to fish, you like to trap, whatever, there's not a better school to go to because the campus is literally on the lake, which has fantastic walleye fishing and out of this world musky fishing. So like, if you're wanting to get in the outdoors and the outdoor industry, that that's a good place to cut your teeth and whatnot. And then, so I did that for four-year plan turned into a five-year plan i was gonna go what was i gonna do i was gonna do like wildlife biology or something like conservation officer and get all the cool toys atvs boats trucks cars whatever well then then the professor that i was that i i got acquainted with and got to know really well well he went on sabbatical so then i was like all right deuces not doing wildlife management i'll just be a cop all right so I started pursuing the um, the law enforcement route, the criminal justice route, 
And uh, growing up, I actually befriended a, a, a cop and he was kind of like a mentor, took me under his wing and told me like about like, what's it like to be a cop? He's like, Andrew, I'm just going to give it to you real. Dude, this is literally my office. This front seat, passenger seat in the back seat, that's my office. I'm like, how many hours do you spend in the squad car? He's like, dude, it could be 12, 15 hours. And I'm like, nope, nope, <laughs> nope not doing that. So then I was like, well, maybe I can do some like mapping or something, something with like uh, geography. So I started taking those classes. Well, that was like way above my pay grade and what they were speaking. I was just not putting two and two together. So I'm like, all right, I'm four years into this. I got mom and dad want me to get done with college, start work and start, you know, start life essentially, you know, get hit with the reality stick, not, you know, living the bum college life, which those were the days of my lives. I, if I wish I could, I wish I could dial it back and do it all over again. So once I got that talk to, um, I was like, all right, all the credits that I have, I can walk out with the mass communications degree, which funny who I can't remember who it was, but someone I got talking to, I can't remember, must've been a buddy or uh, an acquaintance or whatever. They're like, don't just dumb football players get that degree. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, screw you, buddy, whatever. (laughs) So, but it it, it was good for me because we had this really nice, um, like television broadcast studio set up with like this high end equipment and then the radio station. Well, me and a bunch of buddies got together and, uh, on the local channels, there was, there was no like hunting or fishing, like in the local community. Like there's like around it, like on YouTube and like some national shows, but no one like, as far as like, um, seeing it through like a college student's eyes, right. they're like, shoot, let's just blow the doors wide open on this. You know, you go do the fishing, you go do the trapping, I'll go do the hunting or gun hunting or whatever. Let's just all go out film during the year. And then we'll come back here after season closes. And then we'll just put our content on the local network. Nice. And then start, you know, or not necessarily the local network or radio or whatever. Like, you know, we had buddies that had multiple different shows and we would come in and guest hosts and, and just talk outdoors and talk about the lifestyle and talk about our dreams. And to my knowledge, as far as that group of guys, we're all doing what we're passionately in love with right now, full time. So y'all carried it through that. It didn't just start as a, it started as an opportunity and you really seized it and ran with it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then, um, and then it came around to, to doing my, my internship and like doing like my, I had a big thesis, like project I had to write. Well, the majority of the people that do a, a mass communications degree, they just go to a radio station and get kind of bossed around and get coffee and print papers and do this and do that. I'm like, Nope, I don't want to do that. So I went to the department chair and I asked him like, well, I have a buddy that him and his wife are going to start national TV and they need help producing and filming and getting content and all this stuff. Can I, you know, drop the paperwork, whatever the paperwork might be and make my own internship. He's like, yep, absolutely. So I called a buddy of mine and I've known, I've known this guy for golly, I'm 30 years old. I probably known him for at least 20 years. I've known his wife for at least 15. And, um, I helped them produce their show, which jumped up to sportsman's channel that year. So I went from, I started doing like pursuit chant all, all within a calendar year. I went from producing, um, pers- uh, pursuit channel shows to sportman channel shows to outdoor channel shows Wow, all within a year. And, um, so that was, uh, Brent, Nicole Larson, Field the dreams TV. Like those guys, like right there, those are two big mentors. Like 
that have helped me like see through like my passion, my dream of doing like what I'm doing today. And I can't give those guys credit enough because they've actually were in the early stages of help molding and like forming me of like who I am today. And so at the time they were, they just bought a house. They kind of bought like their dream property. So they had to renovate the house. So he, he was like a, a carpenter, general contractor, knows how to build houses and stuff. Well, he would do that. And then that's where me and his wife got to know each other really well. And her and I would go out and film and do a lot of hunting together. And that's where we got the majority of her content. And she, she's like, I don't know any other chick on this entire planet earth that is more crazy about whitetails than her. And then she just kind of like distilled that passion and drive and that whitetail crazy into me. So now her and I are like absolutely obsessed with whitetails. That's pretty, that's a different, that's a different take. You know, you kind of got into it in a way that we haven't heard before, you know, from that, most people come from a deep lineage of, you know, hunting passion and they come up through it and then they develop into wanting to film and everything else. And now you've developed it through a, a relationship with your buddy's wife there. And that, that's pretty neat to, to hear that, that you were able to take it a different direction than most. Yeah. And like, I, I just remember, so I actually, so all through like high school, I used to help run an archery pro shop. I did that for about 10, 12 years until we closed our doors. But he was one of my regulars that would come in and he was, the only, he was one of very few that would actually let me touch their bow and like set up their bow. He'd be like, all right, I want Andrew. I want him wrenching on my bow. Cause at the time I was like, 13 14 15 years old not too many people are going to go into an archery shop and let some kid touch their bow and wrench on their bow and actually have all the faith in the world that it's going to be at the right setup or it's 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 going to shoot through paper well or they're going to be able to go out west and smash mule deer so like in in a way he he kind of started the drive i started seeing this because he did a bunch for like double bull um uh, I think he was on, did something with Matthews and, and like a few other companies and stuff, but he would constantly come in and bring these pictures. And I'm like, dude, I want to do what you do, man. Like, how do I do that? Whatever. Right. So him and I just stayed in touch and shot league together. And, and then obviously I graduated high school, went to college and then I called him up and he, he had an opportunity for me to do what I wanted to do for an internship. So we just took it from there and ran with it. That's, that's pretty, and in the cool. and in that process, I got to know his wife really well because the first time he brought his wife into the shop, I was like, because they were dating, they weren't married at the time. I'm like, there's something different about this one. This one's a little bit more special. And obviously, they've been married for I don't know how many umpteen years and been dating for however long. And like they're to to this day, like everyone talks about the couples of the industry. You know, they talk about like a Pat Nicole or a Ralph and Vicky. Or like, you know, a Shockey or Eva Shockey or, you know. Lee and Tiffany. Drew, Lee and Tiffany or whatever. Like, dude, I don't think those guys have the passion that these two have. Like, they are still to this day, and I can sincerely say this, that they are my favorite hunting couple that is out there. Are they still producing shows? They're not producing as much as, as what they used to. They still do a little bit here and there. She does a lot of wildlife art. She's a wildlife artist. Um. Larson wildlife art she'll she she paints turkey feathers so that's what she does for for her living and then he does some construction building home home stuff I think he manages a bunch of uh, real estate properties or whatever so they don't do as much but 
they they're still connected to the industry. And when I have time, I actually go out there and help and, you know, do some photos, do some video or, you know, watch the kids so they can go have a tree stand date or go take a trip out West or something. So they still do a little bit here and there, but not, not as much as what they used to just because life caught up to them. They got a kid now and you know, they're, they're doing the adulting thing where I'm still just the kid playing in the outdoor industry. <laughs> now you didn't have a big background when it comes to the, the cinematography side. So you kind of had to learn yeah. that for yourself, right? Yeah. I had to learn, I had to learn on the fly really where I cut my teeth as far as running a camera. And it's funny, like, I wish I had this conversation recorded. I can't remember who I was talking to, but I remember sitting down and I'm like, if there's one show in the industry that I cannot do, it would be driven with Pat and Nicole. Well, oh God, what year? I can't remember what year it was. But anyway, they happened to be at the, the Minnesota Deer Classic and my archery shop would go to the, the same deer shows that they would. We would have a booth for our archery shop. Well, that year they happened to be there and they posted uh, a job uh, opening or description or opportunity or whatever. So I sent a, a Facebook message. I'm like, you guys going to be at the, at the show. They're like, yep. So the cool thing about having a booth at some of these deer shows or just trade shows is that um, as soon as the doors close to the public, like you can like bounce around and kind of do like a meet and greet more of a mono a mono one-on-one kind of level. So that's where I was able to get in with Driven. I talked to Pat and then he sat me down gave a little bit of interview. I gave like a demo reel and a cover letter and resume and all this other stuff. And I think within like four or five days, I got a pat, I got a call from Pat Reeve and he's like, so when can you come down and check out the facility down here? Nice. <laughs> and my, and mind you, I said, if there's one show that I cannot do, it was this show. Why? I so mean, what, what made you, your thought go into that? Just because the way the camera work was done and like the, the post side of things was done, it was a very high end production, but it, I mean, you know, when I say high in production, it, it was, it was filmed to be a high in production, but it wasn't like a Hollywood production where right. you had, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to spend on your production with all the different gear and, you know, green screens, blue screens, props, whatever. Like it was within a budget, but it was still like one of the higher end productions that was produced. And I was just like, there's no way I could do it. Well, when I got down there, they were talking about launching a secondary show on, on Sportsman's Channel called hashtag hunter and that's what the opportunity was that's what i was going to produce okay so i produced that and then when i got done producing that i helped produce driven shows for q was it q yeah q1 q2 okay well that's pretty pretty neat i mean it's a whole story there in itself so you know you started with pat and nicole and, and you you got into that side of things at this point, are you still thinking you're just going to be a camera guy and, and not really step out on your own? Or do you still have that ambition and drive? You want to go out and start doing it for yourself? Well, at the time, um, uh, there were some big changes that happened with production. Some guys left. So I literally went from the bottom of the, tel the telephone pole to the top of the telephone pole in about six months. Oh, wow. So I did the solo production for quite a while, probably for about a year and a half. And then we got a couple other guys come on to the team. And then I was kind of like the senior editor, producer, kind of oversaw the whole production kind of side of things and did some like notes and like tweaking and been like, all right, don't do it this way. Do it that way. Whatever. Yada, this, yada, that. And uh, so I did that for a couple of years. And then once I got kind of like the team built back up again to where it wasn't just like one or two guys in house, we had a couple guys in house. I had an opportunity elsewhere 
um, with, uh, with Ralph and Vicky doing Archer's Choice and the Choice. Yeah. So then I, I took that, I ran with it and did that production for a year. And it's a good thing that I did that for a year because into the following year, like we've gotten to COVID and if, if I would have been stuck in Illinois, I don't know what I would have done because that would have been an absolute nightmare. So then that's why would where, it, why would it have been a nightmare because <laughs> well, of the restrictions just, and everything? Like tell you what, I'll, I'll just, I'll just say this, not this in Illinois. I'll come back and visit and deer hunt all the time. I'm just not going to live there. A hundred percent agree. We, you know? we, we can a hundred percent agree with that one. But, I mean, I, I mean, I've met some pretty good friends down there that give me opportunities to come down there and deer hunt. Obviously this last year in Illinois, I was pretty blessed to have an opportunity at my first Illinois whitetail. So that was cool. That'll also make another deer society episode. Um, but yeah, I just, I will not live there. I will visit and I will deer hunt. It's crazy to me, you know, every time we talk to somebody from Minnesota, Wisconsin, something like that, they, he's just a Georgia boy at heart. He just needs to get down here in the South. He's got the same <laughs> mindset that we got on things. Oh, I tell you what, come after December 31st, I'm all about coming South. I do not like the cold anymore, 30 years old, and I'm just like, you know what, I can deal with the cold up until the end and last day of our deer season. After that, I'm like, all right, I want to be gone. Let's go. I'll have to get you down. Get you down for a visit one of these days. You can spend a weekend. Did you feel oh, absolutely? Did you feel like you always had an eye for the camera, or did you have to learn that with working with Pat and Nicole? Um, it. I've always had the eye because it's it's funny that that you bring that up. Um, so, like your typical college kid, like everyone would go out to the bars and get all hammered and stuff. Well, me me and the select group of guys that I hung out with, we would always buy a case of beer and then we would go out in the boonies and we would do like long exposure photography. So that was like our Friday night and Saturday night. Obviously it's, it's more of like one frame and like 24 frames versus, you know, versus like 30 or 60 frames a second, but just slowing it down. So we would always have fun with that, with like light painting and long exposure and like, you know, star trail photos and stuff. So I've, so it started with like one frame. And then once I got more familiarized, like with the camera and like what I can actually do with the camera, then it, then it progressed into like video. And then when I got the crash course I'd driven, it told, it totally opened the floodgates from there. Now the self filming thing, the way it is now, do you run a DSLR or a mirrorless or, um, what, what type of camera setup do you well, prefer? I now, I mean, obviously cause I'm a little bit more picky when it comes to like, footage and like how it's filmed and like a certain look and whatnot so like most guys will like run like a handy cam or whatever with the thumb zoom i run uh i run a mirrorless dslr yep and it's it uh sony it's a sony a7 III and a sony a7s3 and i just feel like in a low light situation sony has it made blows all the other cameras out of the water so when i so when i bring it into a post-production side of things like i don't have as much noise and i don't have to correct as much noise gotcha I feel like Canon oversaturates things a little bit. Um, Nikon would probably be like my secondary choice if I had to guess, but I'm I'm falling through and through a Sony guy. The the, the self filming thing though, does it does it bother you having to zoom? I mean, with you know two hands, and it, does it did it ever take away from it? And I'm asking these questions more for the for the person out there that may be thinking about trying to do some self filming. So. It does, but it, 
it comes down to like, how bad do you want it? Do you just want to shoot a deer? Or do you want to shoot a deer on camera? And that's so, where a lot of gear, I see your gear, especially with the video you did this year, you had a lot of secondary angles. You had a, a tact cam on your bow, you know, you caught the, the shot oh. there and I kick, still kick myself in the butt for not having a tact cam on my bow this year because I get everything up to the point of shot and miss the whole shot on camera because I didn't have it yep. turned right. So And I and I had that already thought out. Like I was like, all right, I'm going to run. I'm going to try to get as much cool pre-roll, and that's that's where I kick my stuff on my Iowa hunt. I wish I had my DSLR with me in the tree because I would have had some absolute killer like slow-mo pre, pre-roll of him like coming down that bluff and yep. just – whipping his antlers around and stopping and scent checking it all oh, would have been beautiful but especially if i had someone else in the tree with me oh my god it would have been on fire but i knew going into it because i was backpacking about three quarters of a mile in to get to my spots well let's 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 do this because I, I don't want to i yeah. don't want to take away from this story because i do want to be able to to paint it for them and um the the camera aspect of it we'll get back back into it but take us to when you drew that Iowa tag, when it came in the mail, you get it and you start making your game plan there. How many years oh. first did it take? Uh, so I think I put in on my fifth year, which I think was a waste of money as far as like my standpoint, just because um, my fourth year, I didn't know what my hunting schedule was going to be like. Cause I was kind of transitioning from moving and uh, moving production. And I just didn't know what I had going on. Right. Didn't think I could have the time to get away. So I think if I would have put it on my fourth year or stopped putting in for points on my third year, put in on the fourth year, I think I would have been okay. Cause typically a lot of the, the more trophy zones in Iowa, you need like four years of preference points or three years of preference points put on your fourth. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, um, you know, at the time they're like 50 bucks to throw for just one point. So, right. you know, five years you know i got 200 and was it 250 well, 200 and then yeah so two yeah so it would have been no 200 bucks and then you put in which would have been um 476 or something like that for your so about you're yeah. you're in it you're in 900 bucks uh, you know or somewhere around probably six seven hundred bucks at that time oh yeah and that and we're not even hunting yet that's, that's right just to get, that's just to get the opportunity to drop yep you know so then i found out that i drew and I was like, hell yeah. Well, at the time, I actually met, when I started working at Driven, I met a gentleman. And we were literally flying back from um, Utah. We were flying back from Utah on a mule deer hunt I just got done filming. And I was in the back of the plane. And I was just shooting the shooting the breeze with a couple old timers. And they had land in Iowa. And they're showing me pictures of all these big deer. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I would love to have an opportunity to come down and do that and they're like well start putting in for points and i'm like really <laughs> like i'm just some joe schmo all you know about me is i just got done producing a, a driven episode right, right. and it, it might not even air we don't even know yet like i could be gone tomorrow because right. i might suck or you know they might find something better or someone better or whatever they're like yeah just don't start putting in so we swap numbers and um i just remember saving his name in my phone as like big deer guy <laughs> so, I, so i made sure like i made sure like i connected with them sometime during the year just called them up or shot them a text like hey what'd you find for sheds or send them a christmas card because i really wanted this opportunity because 
where I came from in Minnesota, I just didn't have a lot of opportunities at shooting like Pope and Young deer. And obviously the minimum score for Pope and Young is 125 inches. Yep. I just never had that opportunity. So I knew for me to have an opportunity somewhere, I needed to have a connection like this. So I was doing everything I could in my power to keep that connection and, you know, not necessarily like use them, but still be genuine enough have been like, Hey, you know, how's your season going? What are you seeing? What are you picking up for sheds? Build a relationship. You know? Yeah. Cause I'm a personal guy. I'm genuinely always curious and honest and it's white tails of passion of mine. Obviously, you know, who knows how many hunters there are that just hunt white tails and we should just be able to all to come together, help each other out. I remember one quote that said, uh, what, what did it say? How did it go? Something like, you know, it's, to, to get where you want to be, it's easier to work together rather than work against each other. That's right. You know, yeah. So this guy, he was, you know, some big time millionaire on a second sheep slam. But, you know, I might be able to help <laughs> produce like a sheep show or something for him because he thinks it's really cool to, you know, get some video together, maybe show his buddies. And if I can help produce that sweet, you know, then he might help, you know, get me a white tail or whatever. Right. So that's how it all so that's how it all started out. So him and I would just play phone tag text and Christmas cards and all this stuff. And then on the third year, I texted him again. I was like, all right, I got three years of preference points. Like, are you sure? Like, you're going to let me come down and hunt and do all this. He's like, yep, put in. So I put in for the draw, drew the tag. And then it was like, cause I wasn't planning on going down there till about like mid October. Mm-hmm. Cause it seemed so as I was producing deer society stuff, it seemed like the guys from deer society that were part of the Iowa team, they always shot their biggest deer that last half of October. So I was like, that's when I want to go to Iowa and start the whole process. So I never went down like in September and like watch for like velvet bucks or did this or do that because I was so busy on the edit side of things, editing right. for deer society. So I'm starting to make a game plan. Like we're, I think we got to be in September at this time. So I shoot him a text. I was like, so can I come hunt your farms? And he said, no. And I was like, I was like, well, what's going on? Well, was it like EHD or something came through down on all his farms? And he said the biggest buck that he had on camera was 140 inches. And I'm like, I'll still shoot 140 inch. I don't care. Like it's my biggest deer to date. He's like, no, they're just, you know, they're really young deer. They're, three-year-olds, four-year-olds. And obviously if you want to shoot the mega giants that I was known to produce, you got to pass those three, four-year-olds in that 140 inch, 150 inch mark to get the Boone and Crockett, you know, 170s, 180s, 190s, 200 inches, you know, and he, he was still trying to find a deer for himself to kill. Okay. So I went into full on blown panic mode. I guess so. (laughs) Oh yeah. So I have this dot, I have this, Huge Covenant tag, cost me almost $900, sitting in my pocket, burning a hole in my pocket, and I have what I thought was like a lights-out game plan is no more in effect anymore. Wow. So luckily luckily with what I do for a living, like, again, you know, being a whitetail hunter, and uh, I like to jib and jab and talk about deer and just very passionate about it, I was able to make some connections down there. So I texted one guy from a show that I did on the Pursuit Channel texted him i was like dude do you live in this zone he said no but i have a buddy that does and does a lot of public land hunting let me connect you to him like yep (laughs) send it away at this point in time i'm desperate i will make anything happen do not care so i started talking to my buddy kyle ford and uh he's like yeah i'll help you find some deer at least try to get you on some spots where you can you know figure it out from there and 
he sent me a bunch of pictures and I mean, we were, I was looking at deer anywhere from 145 inches up to probably Boone and Crockett. You're right. So I was like, all right, cool. And now I kind of have an idea of like where to go. Now I just, now it's just a matter of having boots on the ground. Right. Okay. So I never, I've never met this kid ever in my entire life. So I go down there, what was it? October 15th or 16th. And I was just planning on literally like just sleeping in the bed of my truck. So I have a 2015 Dodge Ram Laramie and it's a five and a half foot box. Okay. Well, I'm five, I'm five eleven in the morning, five ten in the evening. <laughs> so for me to make it work, I'd have to like sleep diagonal on top of like having like coolers and bow and camera gear all slammed into the bed of my truck. That's five and a half foot long. I'm like, how am I going to do this? So I cut my buddy Kyle. He's like, well, do you want to borrow my pop-up camper? I bought for like two 400 bucks. I'm like, sure, let's try it. Yeah. <laughs> At least gives me a little bit more room. So I met him at the campsite and then I uh, went to dinner, had a couple beers and we, he dropped me some pins and stuff. And he was actually going to go hunting the next morning. So he picked me up. We went hunting the next morning and then I think he had to work the next day or something. So then I just kind of like put boots on the ground, started figuring out the land, dropping a bunch of points on Onyx and stuff and throwing out cameras and uh, just really scouting. Like I really didn't start. So total, I have about 12, 12 days into my hunt, but I've only actually hunted like three and a half days. Yeah, I know on the video and you can see how much time and effort you put into not being evasive in those areas and not getting in and being very strategic with the way you played the wind, the way that you you know set up your cameras. And did you run into many people in that early stage on the public? So early, yes, I actually did ran into a couple of guys. That's where the second part of my trip really I was, I was really blessed with some opportunities. Um, I was probably a little bit too cautious, but then again, you know, I'm coming from Minnesota. Like if you break a certain twig wrong and you're going in after your target buck and your target buck hears you break that twig, he's gone for the entire season. He will not show up until January 1st. Sounds just like Georgia. <laughs> like it's, it's crazy. So I was probably a bit too cautious. So like a lot of deer in Iowa, they're, they are used to the, 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 some of the hunting pressure, local hunting pressure, out of state pressure but they just adapt from it. So if you can figure out like what that hunting pressure is, where it's coming and going from, that's right. You'll be able, you'll be able to kill a deer. And literally someone told me at the bar, they're like, dude, if you do not shoot 140 inch, 150 inch deer in Iowa, you screwed up. Yeah. I, mean, so I was like, all right, true. Okay. all right. Challenge accepted. Uh, yeah, obviously <laughs> like I, just, I don't know how many deer I had on camera that were over 155. It was ridiculous. Um, and coming so, from Minnesota is, and I compare Minnesota a lot to Georgia the way it is. I mean, we're like you said, a Pope and Young deer here is a trophy, especially North Georgia oh, yeah. where we're from. I mean, you, you're seeing slammers come out of the south zone, middle zone of Georgia, and there's some urban areas that are dropping some giants. But when we were growing up, it's just like what you're talking about. You get to yep. go to a place like Iowa, Illinois, a, a dreamland state for killing a big buck. You start seeing 140 and 150 inch deer, you get it in your mind. I can make this happen, and that's exactly what kind of transpired with you. And in, 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 you know, as it as it moved along, yeah. Because like I said, I, you know, I got this 900 dollars tag in my pocket. I'm just not going to dump the first deer that comes walking by me because a I'm self employed. This is what I do for a living, so I have all the time in the world. So I base off my hunting like work schedule around like my personal like hunting schedule. So I pick right. the windows that I want look at the weather and stuff, plan from there, and just go from there and get lost. 
And obviously, like a lot of the people that I that I work with and my two business partners right now with Alma Nine Productions, Brian Lemke and Adam Hulwig, they knew that I have I have this tag in my pockets. So they're like, dude, go do your thing. We'll figure it out from there. Just <laughs> when you get time, got downtime, come back, edit, crank all night long, go back down, kill a deer. So that's good business partners. Yeah, yeah, it was fine business partners. <laughs> <laughs> when when we got when we got when when it's big deer season, we all We'll all pull an extra gear for each other, and we'll make sure that the other person has an opportunity at cranking a big gear. How many cameras were you running? So that one was, I think I had three cameras going. At one time, I had four, but I was just I was just packing in too much gear. Like I, you want to talk about doing it like the cheap way? I did it on the cheap way. Just the only thing that wasn't cheap was I bought a couple extra pieces of camera gear to help like make my filming a little bit easier right but you know i was carrying in the big heavy metal stands and big you know muddy sticks or gorilla sticks or you know the whatever the you know the big heavy stuff i was carrying all that in and carrying it out on top of carrying all my camera gear so have that's you, where i was just like <laughs> have you adapted that at all since then oh <laughs> yes i have i got it i got it pretty much figured out now to a science I actually started, I actually, this last year, I started hunting out of a tree saddle, which is absolutely a game changer. Game changer. Keep There's not that. a tree you can't get into. There's not a tree you cannot get into. You can make it work. Absolutely. Now, yeah, Bob, I bet you wish you had that saddle when you was lugging around up there. Oh my goodness. I did. But unfortunately, I don't think the tree that I was in it, I don't think I could have made it work because it was, I think it was like a big cottonwood. I couldn't even get my arms around it. Yeah, it was a big tree. Cause where I was set up, I had a bunch of fallen down timber like in front of me. So they couldn't like skirt underneath me. So they'd have to like skirt out way wide, which played into my setup. Now you, you get this target buck on camera, the, the big 10. And when you first see him, did you pretty much set your sights as that being the deer you wanted to take? Or were you pretty much just still in scout mode? I was still in scout mode, but he was honestly the first deer first shooter I ever got on camera in Iowa. I remember it was like at three o'clock in the morning, 4 a.m. And I purposely like would sleep with my phone right by my ear so I could have, so I could hear the buzzer go off. So then I can check and figure out where that camera was. And it went off at three, 4 AM and it was the deer that I shot. And I'm like, yep. All right. Boom. Okay. We got something that we can chase. There's at least a deer living on this piece of property, but it's only one trail camera picture. You right. can't go off a whole lot on one trail camera picture. So yeah. that's where I started like honing in on that spot and did a little bit more scouting figured out you know where the deer activity was where the deer sign was moved cameras around and then i let them sit for like three four days and then if i got nothing on it i was out there moving it all over again so you weren't just so, leaving that camera sitting you were you were strategically moving it as it as it advanced did you go in during the yeah. middle of the day and do that or do you try to i, I know you were i want you to talk about that a little bit because that's something that interests yeah. me yeah so i would wait until like late morning to go in i'd wait for like the early morning deer activity to get done and then i would go in there early like late not early in the morning but late morning like 10 11 o'clock and just go get lost and do some walking around and then um just coming from minnesota like minnesota has a lot of like hunting like public land hunting pressure mm -hmm. so i always think of like all right if i was actually hunting and i seen this yahoo come walking through my setup like while i'm hunting so i was trying to be mindful of other hunters not you don't have to do that, but that's just who I am as a person. Like it's ethics. last thing I want. Yeah. It's, it's hunting ethics. And that's just kind of how I was raised. And, you know, some people got it for some people have it, not a lot. 
honor that code, that kind of unwritten hidden code. Yeah. But I wanted to be sure, like I wasn't like screwing up someone else's hunt. So I would go in low and slow. I'd use my binos, look up in the tree and stuff, or pay attention where people were parking. I'm like, all right, well, typically they park here. People are gonna walk in, go over here, whatever. And I actually did run into people like while they were actively hunting, but I was able to like slip out or like take a drainage or take a creek bed and like go around them and then continue on my scouting and still dropping pins and moving cameras around. So I was constantly active. I was constantly mobile. I never really sat in one spot for too long until I started seeing the deer that I wanted to see. And then once I started seeing the deer I wanted to see, I've been like, all right, cool. Now we can start hunting here. We're going to focus on this area. Yeah, I know. I know that day that you walk by the camera, and then ten minutes later, here comes the deer that you've been oh, in there. Dude, was, I bet that was. That I was, bet your heart just hit the floor. Oh, I did. Because I, I remember I was literally climbing out of the creek bed, and I felt my phone buzz on my chest, and I'm like, "Oh, oh it can only be a couple of cameras." Because that morning, I seen I seen my target deer, the deer that I killed, and then another like 160 inch deer that same morning. Because they did. So I got in there the evening before this was on my second trip. So I already did like eight, nine days just scouting. And then on my second trip, that's when I really started hunting like hardcore, putting in time in the tree stand and, and letting but, that deer get away on that first trip that they came in and bedded down on you. Wasn't it? Wasn't it on your first trip? Oh yeah. 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 That was my first trip. So that was my first opportunity at, at shooting an actual deer in Iowa. And everyone, like I was reading the, you'll have to go back and read the comments, but people are like, how did you not hear that deer coming? How did you not do this? How did you not do that? Like, what is going on? Well, obviously like the camera doesn't show everything that happens, but also too, the camera adds an extra step for me. Mm -hmm. Like I literally, so, so I did, well, how did I do this? So I had a camera sitting there and I had a couple different shooter bucks show up on camera and I was like, all right, so I need to go in there. The, the next evening hang a stand and hunt it okay so it was again 80 75 degrees so i yep. went in hung the stand went back to my truck showered mm-hmm. and the one thing to add another this is a side note that didn't make it on camera but i actually dropped my truck into a big freaking hole in this field like it swallowed it swallowed up my left front tire and literally the whole tire truck went flying forward the rear tires lifted off the ground. All my hunting gear came flying to the front of the truck. I opened the door. My front left tire swallowed up in this hole. My bumper is cranked all the way up underneath oh my, my left front wheel well. And I'm like, how am I going to get out? So I, I ram it out of there and I drive down this front of the road and I get into a parking spot and I called a buddy of mine. I was like, hey, can you come over here and like I need to use your truck and like ratchet straps to bend my bumper back so I can continue hunting. So that was a side thing that never really came yeah, yeah. on camera. As I'm trying to get go into the spot to do a hang and hunt. Oh, wow. So I get my so I get my bumper fixed. I grab my tree stand and sticks. I walk in three quarters of a mile, hang it, and then I walk back out. I do a shower at my truck, tailgate shower, bring all my hunting gear in, set up on it. And as I'm setting up, I literally hear a deer like cough or like choke on something. Yep, yep. And I, I, I looked into the direction. I just seen white antlers coming. And I'm like, yep. All right. This game on. So I got my DSLR rolling. I got my other couple of um, POV cameras rolling. And literally as I turned, grabbed my bow, turned back around to see what it was. The deer was already at 17 yards bedding up. 
And a great buck. A great buck. <laughs> a slammer deer. Like I probably, if I would have gotten away with it, I probably would have shot that deer. But again, going back to the ethics side of things, shooting a bedded deer on camera is not always great. Now, if I was in a spot and stock situation, it probably would have been a little bit more ethical because I would have had to like move in on this deer, bedded up. But wow. I was already there. He bedded in front of me. But as he's bedding down, he's literally looking at me. He's got his eyeballs up at me. So I'm like, what do you do? Do you wait it out or do you try it? Yeah. So I'm like, screw it. This is my first opportunity. Let's try it. So I'm literally drawing on this deer as he's looking at me. And there's comments, people are like, oh, you should have just waited it out, waited it out. It's like, well, it's a, it's a situational call. Like, I know the deer's going to bolt at any time anyway, so I might as well try it. There's there's an element to that, though, that you that a lot of people won't play into and think about. And, and it's immediately what I thought. So you've went through this scenario and this deer's shown up there. You've turned on your DSLR. You've turned on your POV cameras. You can wait it out. But your ultimate goal with this situation is not only to be able to harvest an animal ethically, but to be able to capture it on film. If you wait too long, you run the risk of running a battery dead. You run the risk of, you know, it not being the right angle or whatever it may be. And that's something that can't. I watched that video today again, and that went through my head. Yeah, I would love to sit there and wait, but you're standing and you're standing at draw with your bow or at, you know, ready to draw. I don't care who you are. I don't care what kind of hunter you are. You're not standing there for very long. Your back's going to kink up. I mean, I don't care what kind of shape you're in. There's too many elements to it. And you did exactly what I'd have been doing. I'd have been trying to get that bow back and and make something happen. Oh, yeah. And it's a a situational call. And you got to be able to read the deer's body language really quick. Obviously, the deer coming in, he had some sort of distress. And he wasn't going to hang out very long. He was going to, like, bolt out of there. Because as soon as he caught his breath, because you could see him panting very heavily. Like, he was just going to catch his break, and then he's going to get up and leave. He's just taking but him a little, catching, little break. <laughs> right? And as he's catching his break, he sees a, a possible threat up in this tree about 20, 25 feet. He's like, <laughs> I can't stay here very long. i got to get out of here. Well, so that, that, that wasn't the deer that you killed, though, right? No. Nope, that was a different deer. That was about 140-inch nine-point, Yeah, I believe. Hey, when was, also the, had, when was the first day that you got the deer that you killed on camera? Was it October? It was October. It was, uh, when was it? The reason I'm asking this is, is between the time you got that deer, how much did that deer travel or did he pretty much stay in that same area? I think he pretty much stayed in the same area. He just might have been skirting where I had my cameras out. But when you killed Um, him, he was kind of in seek mode. He wasn't really running yet, yet, right? No, because we, like I said, I killed that deer. It was probably about 85 degrees. So, like, I was seeing like a lot of two, three-year-olds chasing deer because they're just, they're teenagers. They don't know what's going on. They're going through this hormonal change. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that a lot of these older mature bucks know where that first set of does will come into estrus. So they're kind of like an old man. I always say, I always talk about the old man theory. An old man's not going to go very far from his bed. He's going to want water and food very close to where he's bedding. And he's going to get up when it's convenient for him. So I feel like these older mature bucks know where that area where the does first come into estrus. They get up out of their bed. They do their rounds. They do their wind check. They check to see if their ladies are are in heat yet. And if they're not, they're like, all right, I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to grab some water, maybe a bite to eat. And then I'm going to go right back in my bed and lay down for the rest of the day until the evening when it cools off. Did you age that deer once you took it? I didn't age that deer, but if I had to guess, he's probably about a five-year-old. Yeah. 
So I'm obviously a mature deer and a great deer to harvest. Absolutely. <laughs> Buddy, I don't care how old he is. He's, I, let this Georgia boy be sitting there and then walk out on me. We, I'm doing everything I can. We kind of stopped the story, I guess, for October. We really not never really got in November. We were, uh, well, well, we were rewound back to his first trip. I wanted yeah. him to be able to tell that, that story behind the, you know, missing the opportunity at that one bedded down. Or, but you, yeah, were getting, you were getting deer pictures – but yep. you just didn't have was, a you didn't have a correct win, right? Yeah, I was waiting for a certain win. So, like when I would go in and do my scouting, I was starting to figure out that the deer that I was hunting his core area because he kept showing up on these select few cameras that I had that I had set up. And then there was another deer that was actually running with him that was even bigger, and I was starting to get him on camera more frequently too. Um, when was this? Let's see here. God, a, a bigger a bigger one. Bigger one. <laughs> dude it's crazy so i actually had like a like a a backup like a plan b set up so as i was doing my scouting i i dumped into this huge uh um this dry creek bed and the deer trail and the deer sign and the scrapes and the rubs that i was seeing was absolutely ridiculous so i was like i need to hang a camera here so i tried to hang a cell cam there but i couldn't get any service so i i just hung a regular um a regular camera up and i and i left it i put like a really big SD card in there because I was like, all right, when it comes to my last few days of hunting, I'm going to pile into this dry, this dry creek bed or kind of, it's kind of like a bottom, which kind of in the evenings or doing all day sits in the bottom. It's kind of hard because the wind's constantly swirling. So I was like, all right, this is going to be my absolute like plan B last resort, Hail Mary, whatever it is. Um, I'll just sit there all day for my remaining days. And I, hopefully I get lucky and kill something. And all the big deer that I had on camera were running through that, that one specific spot. You kind of make yourself vulnerable when you, when you get down to the, the haywire time of things, uh, yeah. you, you start pushing the limits of it. And that's, I think that's something that a lot of people are scared to do, especially when they travel out of state, they, they want to be very adamant about their scent control. They want to be adamant about playing the wind and, when you get into those situations, you're like we are. You're traveling there to hunt for a certain amount of days. Well, you're getting down to your last two, three days. You got to start. You got to start taking some chances. I mean, as bad as we hate to do it as whitetail hunters, it's an opportunity. You got to put yourself in the most viable position to get a deer killed. And before you went back to that spot, Andrew, how many days did you know when the wind changed? I guess there was a front coming in. There was a front coming in. When so you, the wind. When you went back, how many days did you set aside for yourself to go hunt that you said, this is it, I got to make something happen? Um, I think I had planned like five or six days on my second loop that I had left off to the side to where I could like actually like hunt and do all day sits. Now, did that's you, what I was going to Go ahead. Go ahead. Because that's what I was going to do when I went down on my second trip. I was literally going to hunt from dark to dark. Did you know that you wanted to be there before rut activity really kicked in? Was that a goal for you? Yeah, that was a goal for me because when I was putting together a bunch of the Deer Society content, like I said before, like a lot of the guys in Iowa, they shot their biggest deer on that that last half of October. So I wanted to get done. I wanted to do more of a pre-rut hunt than, than a rut hunt because I didn't know like what the actual like hunting pressure was going to be like. Yep. You know, if I was going to be battling for a spot or, or running to someone that was like, oh, you're in my spot. I've been hunting here for 30 years or whatever. I'm like, well, sorry, <laughs> dude. Like, I beat you to it. Like, it's, yeah. it's hunting, whatever. But I wasn't I, – I, I just didn't want to get myself in that situation. That, I wanted to get done, 
get in, get it done. And then, you know, pick up the rest of my work that I had lined up for that season. That's great advice. Yeah. Great advice. Yeah. And, and I but, think that a lot of times when we travel out of state, we look for those key weeks, just like everyone else does. And fortunately it's paid off in some respects In some respects it hasn't, but with the increased pressure that we get in public hunting and especially out of state with open tags where you can just buy them over the counter, I think that's something to take away from. And you don't necessarily have to be there during the rut, but it's nice though. I tell you that, that rut time in, in the Midwest is a different, it's a different animal. People that ain't never experienced oh, it it's unreal. It is like, I never even got to like, I mean, I did experience some rut activity in Iowa, but again, you know, I was hunting in 70 to 85 degree weather. So I never really had that true rut hunt, yep. but when I was hunting there, it was revving up. So the week that I killed my deer, my roommate, he shot his 151 as an eight pointer. And then my business partner shot, I think his, his Minnesota deer, it was, it, I think it, I think it was just under Boone and Crockett. Golly. So he, so he shot, so my business partner shot his deer November, November 2nd. My roommate shot his deer November 3rd. I shot my deer November 6th. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a tight area and top window there to make it happen. You guys had to be on cloud nine. Oh, we were. And it's, it's funny because, so when I went down on my second loop, my roommate was already at his camp. I had, I was just finishing up work. So I was getting down to Iowa late. So I called him up. I was like, Hey, can I stay at your camp? He's like, yeah. So as he's getting up in the morning, he's, you know, lathering up in phase and doing the lotion and, you know, starting his process. And I'm sitting in the bunk and he's, he looks at me and he laughs. He's like, you want to come film me? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, you didn't. I did. And I'm like, nope, I'm tired. I just need a few more Z's because I was going to go do a hang and hunt that evening. Right. Now he's in Iowa too. Uh, he was hunting Iowa too. Oh, okay. Okay. He was, in, he, was in, he was in North Iowa. I was in Southern Iowa. So I had another boat. Four, yeah, I had about another four hour drive to get to where I was going to. That's awesome. So, so he goes out, hunts, and then um, where we're staying at, it's another buddy of ours that he works with. He's knocking on the on the trailer door. He's like, "Hey, Marshall shot one," and I'm like, "Yeah, okay, whatever." He's like, "Hurry up, throw some underwear on. We got to go." Oh, so, so you like, were so you could have filmed it for him. So I could I could have filmed him. So he so my roommate smashed his deer at like 10, 12 yards from from the ground from a ground blind. Wow. <laughs> and he and the distance, the distance that he shot his deer from where the deer was shot and where the deer piled up, where the deer piled up from where he was shot was shorter than the distance that he shot. Heck of a shot. So he watched he watched him die. That is unreal. And, so, I, and he, he jokingly is like, oh, you could have been here filming this. And I probably, I would have filmed it too. If I would have, you know, if I would have known all I was going to conspire from it, because we probably would have had another awesome Deer Society episode. <laughs> well, and I, I think that it all plays into it. I mean, you could have got in there and it been too much scent down and it couldn't have, you know, he couldn't have came in. I mean, you never know the scenarios. You always want to oh, put yeah. yourself in those positions. But so now you're headed back down on your second hunt. Marshall's taking his buck and you're probably well, it, on cloud nine, I guess. You're still pumped oh, up dude, for that. There's 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 a trail. So when I because I, I went in and helped did like recovery like photos and we did like a Facebook live video or whatever. So I was sacrificing my hunt because I was I was committed to going that evening. I actually stayed one more day. 
and like help throughout the whole entire process just because I'm absolutely white tail crazy and I just want to share this moment yep. with my roommate because we are so genuinely passionate about white tails. So, you know, we took pictures and video and had a couple beers and, you know, cutting up the deer and just, you know, having having the deer camp. Because when I go out and do all my travels and stuff, I don't get to necessarily experience that like deer camp. That's yeah, right. I, I do with like clients that I film, but I'm still working. I can't like cut loose and like, you know, hang with the boys and have a couple beers and stay up late and, you know, have a hangover the next day or, you know, whatever. That's right. I just I wanted to experience it because I knew that was his biggest deer to date. And it, that just gave me so much more motivation. Dude, good on you for that. Good on you for that. Because we, we, and we talk about that a lot with people, especially in the industry or just general hunting, you know, the way that we do it anymore, the way that we travel, we, we've got away from that deer camp mentality in a way. And man, what a blessing it is at times for us to get back to those moments. And cause it, it puts it oh, in yeah. perspective and it gives you those, it gives you those real times for you to be able to experience a memory with a friend that you'll never, you'll never be able to relive that no matter how many times you tell the story. No, you won't. You really won't. And that's why I did what I did. I was like, you know what? I'll sacrifice one evening of hunting. And I'll just, I'll just embrace it with this good buddy of mine, you know? That's and awesome. it's, it's funny. So another side note, he actually, when he, the first deer that came in was his target deer, but he was already broken. Oh, okay. So he, so he passed him. He thought he screwed up, and then behind this deer was the deer that he killed. He didn't screw which up, ended up, being, which ended up No. Which ended up being a bigger deer anyways. <laughs> didn't make a mistake at all. So you, you oh. leave from that camp. You headed back down. You're on cloud nine, and this is on what day was oh, this yeah. on? Uh, this was, when was it? Um, there's actually a trail camera picture of me walking in to help my buddy do his recovery, and I'm like, <laughs> I seen the deer, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, that is a giant deer!" That was that was November November third. Okay, so three days before you took yours. Yep. So I go down there November fourth. I get down there. Um, actually, when did it all this start? Let's backtrack here really quick. When's the first daylight picture I had of that deer? And the deer that I'm talking about is that the deer that I killed. Cause when I left, so for my first go around, I left Iowa knowing I'm like, all right, this is the deer I want to target. This is the deer I want to kill. If anything else, it's, it's going to be a bonus. So I went, so I started November 16th, hunted eight days and went back home, started working, got my first daylight picture of the deer that I killed uh, December 30th. So I finished work. So obviously there's been a couple days. So October 30th. October, yeah. yeah. He started October, hunting October, yeah. yeah. Yep, October 30th is when I got the first daylight picture. I was like, all right, I'm committed. I got to finish my work, get done with my work, go down there. Roommate kills on November 3rd, help him do his deer. So now it's November 4th. I'm like, all right, got to go. See you later. Bye, Marshall. Like, you're de- <laughs> you can legally cross. That was the other thing, too, like. There's a lot of like with the CWD thing and like transporting deer across state lines. Like I wanted to make sure like he was taken care of yep. as far as crossing the state line and being legal, which is another huge <laughs> thing that unfortunately we as hunters and public land hunters, we got to start doing more of. That's right. So you got to have, so you got to have a game plan going forward. If you're going to have, do a lot of these out of state hunts. So I got him legalized and uh, go down November 4th get down there it's i probably literally only have probably about an hour to hunt 
So I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I, I have to get in the spot. This is going to be an observation spot. It'll be an easy hang and hunt deal. I just, I, I, my gut's telling me that I have to be in this spot tonight, even though I have only an hour left to hunt. So as I'm hanging this set, I literally, I hear this buck like grunting, chasing this doe and I turn and look, it's my deer. He runs, he runs right underneath my stand. Oh my god! That's gosh. when he was out in the field, right? On the video. Is that when he was yeah. coming down the field edge? So he was coming. He was actually, I think he was still in, in a, in that Creek bottom. He, he took some, he pushed the dome into the Creek bottom that I used to access. So he didn't pick up my center right because I had rubber boots on. And obviously he's got one thing on his mind and one thing only. That's right. That's where I think, that's where I think you can get away with, you know, rolling the dice or, or risking it for the biscuit. So to say on hunting like marginal wins or whatever, but I had this for where I was thinking this deer was coming. I had an absolute perfect win. Well, when they're chasing those, who knows what they're going to do. That's right. So he literally, so my, so I think I'm on like stick number three or hanging the fourth stick here, here, this commotion, look, see that it's my target deer, my bow and all my pack is on the ground still. So I'm like, what do I do? Like, do I get down and just hunt from the ground or do I, finish committing and hanging the stand so I can get elevation and see where he's running or pushing this doe to, or I might see a bigger buck or a different buck that's coming in and how can I make a play on him? So I commit, I go, I jump down to the bottom of the stand, throw up my platform, get in the tree, hang up, and I'm watching him push this doe all around. And at the time I didn't have my DSLR with me, my main camera to like zoom in, push on him. I just had a couple POV cameras going. Cause I'm like, I got to get in there. I got to get set up quick. And that was the only way I could make it quick was to leave my main camera in the truck. Right. So I did that. I watched him push this doe up this bluff. And then the other 10 pointer that was with him and and he would have been probably, he probably would have been over 160 inches comes off the exact same bluff, about 80 yards in front of me. And then goes into the, that, that bean field cornfield that they were feeding in and that's where he feeds. And I wait till dark, dark, get out and then go out the Creek, the the dried Creek bed and go back home and we're not go back home, go back to camp and then set up for the next morning, which, so I got to kind of backtrack a little bit. So the first round, as I was scouting, um, I was walking into this particular spot and I seen this hunter hunt, hunting this little pinch point on this pit bean field. So I was, so me being an ethical kind of dude and just being respectful to other people's hunting. So I backtrack all all way around this guy, do my scouting. And then I'm like, all right, I'm going to get to the edge of this field where he can't see me. And I'm going to wait till dark, dark. And then I'm going to walk underneath where he was hunting because he should be out by that. Right. So I wait till dark, dark. And as I get to the spot where he's at, he's actually climbing down out of his climber. And I'm like, oh, hey, sorry, I didn't mean to ruin your hunt. And he's like, holy jeep and Jesus, you scared me. I startled him. I snuck up on him. So right, right. I'm pretty good at the sneaking thing. <laughs> and uh, so I help him out of the stand. I, You know, he drops his bow. He gives me his pack. And, you know, he hands me the top part of his platform because he's in a climber. And, you know, I don't have to do this, but, you know, I just right. – I'm trying trying to pick people's brain on, like, what they're seeing for deer and, you know, not – not asking them to give me everything that they're seeing, but you're building a relationship, building a relationship. Exactly. That's what it is. And so 
we're walking back and we're walking back to the truck and we're just kind of, you know, shooting the breeze. And he's like, Oh yeah, my buddy over here is hunting over here. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, you guys want to grab some beers and burgers and like, you know, I'll buy whatever, you know? So we go to the local bar and we have some beers and burgers and we're, you know, we're sharing strategies and stuff. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of being quiet about it. Cause I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know what they know. And I'm yeah, yeah. Playing stupid you know but at the same time i'm like i'm sucking it all up and just enjoying the experience and then they're like well where are you staying at i'm like ah just some campsite you know over and i can't remember what the town was he's like well do you need a hot shower i'm like well i mean i do have a hot shower but i gotta like run the shower for like an hour and a half to get like (laughs) warm he's like well why don't you just come over to my mother-in-law's place and you know we'll have lunch and you can have a hot shower and stuff i'm like are you sure He's like, yeah. He's like, all right, cool. I'll take you up on it. So then I went over there, had, you know, a hot, hot lunch and, you know, a shower and stuff. And uh, so that's where, that's where this all plays into it. So I ended up staying at his mother-in-law's house on my second loop, which happened to be about 15, 20 minutes from where I was hunting. Oh, nice. So I didn't have to make that, you know, half hour, 45 minute drive from where I was camping at, which at the time coming back on my second loop, the campsite was already going to be shut down. Right. So I was going to, I was going to rough it in my truck. So they're like, Andrew, just stay here or whatever. His mother-in-law was absolutely sweet. The nicest lady of that I've ever met, like God bless her soul. And like, I send her a Christmas card and she's like, when are you coming back to Iowa? I'm like, well, I can't come back for another three, four years. But you know, she's like, well, let me know when you draw a tag, I'll let you stay in my basement again. And you're like, I'll cook you dinner. And I'm like, you don't have to cook me dinner. I'll bring my own food again. But yeah. But that's the way that they are up there. When you, when you get in, they're very, they're not the open door, you know, bring everybody in. But once you get in, they are the finest people in that part of the country you will ever meet. I was absolutely blown away by it because there's no way I'd have this experience in Minnesota. Like we're just, everyone's just really particular about their spot and they're not going to have it in Georgia about it. You're not, you're just not going to have that. So I was absolutely blown away by that opportunity. And it, it, it was an opportunity to help make my hunt even more successful because it took a lot of stress out of, off my plate and off my chest. So you stay there on the, the, that would be the fifth. You've stayed there and you've got your shower. You've hunted that evening of the fifth. And this is going into the, the sixth after you've, uh, you've made the relationship with them, correct? Uh, no. So I got, no, this would have been on that first leg. This was going in back into your second leg. This was the first leg. So, so his mother-in-law knew that I was coming down that evening and wasn't going to get there till a little bit later. And I told her, I told, I told this lady, I was like, you do not have to cook dinner for me. I got my own stuff. (laughs) And I come walking in the door and she's like, oh, dinner's on the table. Just got to throw it in the microwave. And I'm like, Jesus, you're killing me here. Be sweet. What was her name again? can't remember her name i, I thought you said at the beginning saying you didn't have a girlfriend or nothing yeah he might have, he got him a new girlfriend <laughs> right um how was her name you're trying to get some iowa property now <laughs> yeah unfortunately she's a she's a little bit too old for me <laughs> well she could be like a, a she surrogate any, grandma she have any property <laughs> no she don't but i mean where i'm where where i was hunting it's it's good it's good enough can't remember her name drawing a blank here um, well regardless of what her name is it was amazing yeah. you know to meet her um oh. for sure i mean and that's and, and i think that that keeps time back into to your story which is something i'm going to bring up a little later but um you're back down there staying with her you've had that dinner 
and you've you've really had a pretty dramatic run the last couple of days with your buddy taking one. Oh. Now you're back in the saddle on it, and it's time yep. to, it's time to go. Yeah, because I, I remember walking in the door. She had dinner on the table for me. She's like, so what did you see tonight? I'm like, I saw the one that I'm after. She's like, no way. She's like, well, tell me about it. She knows a little bit about hunting right. from her son-in-law, but I bring a whole new level to the experience and, like, storytelling and, like, reading deer's body language and, like, just kind of figuring out to a science, like, why why is this specific deer going through this way? Why is he not coming that way? He comes in on this wind. Just, you know, I just, like I said, I just bring the whole whitetail experience to a whole new level. Like, right. you know, there's your, there's your weekend warriors, like my buddy. And then there's like the next level up. So, so at November 4th, seen my deer and then seen another bigger deer go back in early in the morning first deer i seen is that bigger 10 pointer that like 160 inch 10 pointer and he he did pretty much the exact same line that he did the evening before and then i watched the deer that i shoot come off the bluff that that bigger one came off of last night well instead of instead of continuing north he hooks to the east okay and i'm assuming he's checking his, his scrape line and checking where his typical doe is coming to estrus so as he does that loop, I wait till about like 930. I'm like, all right, I got to rip my stand out because both them deer went in the exact same hole. I got to set up right there. So I go in there and do the whole phase thing. And I had a scent drag and doing all this stuff. Like I'm, I'm literally like watching my steps, like, all right, I need to go this way. I can't go this way because when right. they come this way, they're good. They're going to cut my trail this way. Like, like I said, I'm probably overanalyzing everything. But that's how committed I was to harvesting and punching my tag in Iowa. So I get into the hole where they're at, and I'm expecting there to be a scrape, a community scrape there, because they all stop at this one specific, this one specific low hanging limb. And I'm like, there's going to be a community scrape there. So I'll hang a camera there too, and that's where I'll hang my stand. While I get there, there's not a community scrape, and I'm like, crap. All right, so they're still coming in this hole, but where's the trail going? So I, I follow the trail. I find the tree that I want to set up in. So I actually hang the set. I get in the set. And I'm kind of like analyzing the setup and I'm like, nope, this is not the tree because if he comes off here, he's going to be at like 15 yards at eye level with me. And if he comes off the bench, like they did before, he's going to be again, 15 yards. eye level with me, not going to work. So I rip the entire set out and I'm looking around and all the trees that I'm finding are probably about like yay big around. Yep. And I'm like, and there's just not, there's just not enough back cover. So I'm like, all right, I need to find a bigger tree. Well, there's this big cottonwood <laughs> on the edge of where those deer were skirting. And if, if my, the deer that I shoot, if he does what he did this morning, I'll have a, a chip shot at like 20 yards, like right underneath me. And where this cottonwood was sitting, there's a bunch of deadfall and trees around, like surrounding it. So the only way they would get close would be coming in on the back door on that CRP field where he skirted and went east. Okay. So by, so by the time he gets around me and gets behind me, I can already be swiveled around, full draw, pin on the chest cavity, whammo, done, 20 yards. <laughs> so, but if he doesn't do that, he'll still skirt, he'll still skirt out in front of me at about 20, 25 yards, still giving me enough um, wiggle room to where he's not going to be like right underneath, underneath me and be that like that severe angle shot. Right. So I throw that, so I throw that stand up and I get out 
I'm all sweaty and stuff. And I'm like, well, typically I'd just stay there and just hunt, just do another hang and hunt. But I'm like, I got to get out. I got to go home. Got to go back to camp. Got to shower. Got to wash my clothes. So I, uh, I walk in front of a camera at like 10, 10, 15 or whatever I think it is. And not even seven minutes. I think it was, I think it was about seven minutes later, my target deer that I shoot walked by the exact same camera. I remember climbing the bank and I felt the buzzing on my phone on my chest. And I'm like, Oh, I don't know what deer it is, but a deer just walked by one of my cameras. I look at it and literally it's, it's the deer that I shoot. Right. So if I would if I would have took my time, I would have met nose to nose with this deer and it, it would have been over. He would have busted out and gone into the next County. So what he did was he did, he, he ended up following his scrape line and he went to this community scrape where I, I think it was the second time I got pictures. That's kind of where I figured out where he was coming and going from. He, if he was come, I figured out what he was doing. If he come in from the left side of the camera and I figured out what he was doing when he was coming in on the right side of the camera on that community scrape. And that's just kind of where it just kind of unfolded from there. And I just started placing cameras all around. So what he did was he went to that community scrape and he beam lined it for that corner where I crossed that camera. And I just happened to be a little bit quicker than him. And he came right behind me. So I was like, all right, yep, I'm in the right spot. This is that deer's core area. Now it's November 5th. We're gearing up for the rut. But the only thing they they don't have going for them is the cold weather. It's still hot weather. So they're still in somewhat of like, a late summer, early fall pattern. So I get up there, I get it back up in the stand. Like my, my entrance and my exit's absolutely bulletproof. Cause I remember walking out, I think the night before I peeked up into that bean field and it was just solid full of deer. So I actually jumped up on the, on the, on the Creek bed ledge and my wind was blowing right through them or right to them. And when that happened, I jumped back down into the Creek bed and I, I threw a wind floater they couldn't get my wind because my wind was literally sucking down with the thermals into that Creek bed. So that's how I knew I had a flawless in and out entrance and exit strategy. Yeah, I, heard, I, I, heard, I would have never thought about something like yeah, that. Yeah. But I heard him mention that about the thermals and that's something we keep talking about a lot with folks is, is the thermal and the paying attention to it. And I mean, it, and he's talking about that heat wave. We're, we're in Illinois during this same time that you're in Iowa. So we know okay. This was we were we arrived on the uh, on the seventh, uh, um, which was right after that, and it stayed hot till the next week. I mean, it stayed into the the eighties, even into oh, Tuesday yeah. and Wednesday of the next week. So we know exactly what you're talking about. That that same time frame you were there, all this is unfolding. We're right there with you, man. So it's so oh, yeah. it's it's wild to hear you talk about that. And it's crazy because back at like home, I think we had like six, six inches of snow. Right. And the, the West was getting slammed and then, and then it started oh, moving yeah. that way. So I, I had people calling me. They're like, what are you experiencing down there? Do you got snow? And I'm like, no, I'm 85 <laughs> degrees and I'm sweating my balls off. <laughs> oh. Like are deer moving? I'm like, yeah, I'm targeting two deer right now. got to go see you. Bye. <laughs> so, so you've got this, you know, this whole plans unfolding in your head. And before we get, you know, down to the brass tacks of it all un- unfolding and being done, are you really as confident as you, you should be? Or, or is your mind kind of playing with you like, I may not be able to make this happen because of the temperatures? Is, or, is it, or is it really focusing in now, hey, I'm fixing to make this happen? I'm, it, it's focusing. I'm like, I'm going to make this happen. Like, if I'm seeing these deer and this caliper of deer during this weather, yeah. I have them on a pattern. It's, it's a done deal. It's, it's going to happen. Like, 
it, I might get the opportunity and get a really good encounter on film. Mm-hmm. I might not be able to put an arrow through the chest cavity, but I'm like, something is going to happen because that was, so that was third. I got down there Wednesday. So I hunted Thursday and I looked at the future, like the five day weather forecast. And I knew that Monday I had a cold front coming in and it was going to drop about 20, 30 degrees. Right. So the good, the good hunting is still yet to come, yep. but yet I have these caliper deer on a pattern. So it's, 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 it. it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's almost like a, like, I shouldn't say a freebie, but it's like, it's, it's going to happen. Like right. who knows, you know, so, so you, I hunt, go ahead. You went out that final afternoon. That's when you're talking about the wind out of the Creek, right? Yep. And you left that same set to go back in the next morning. Yep. And that's, went back, yep. that's when you went in on the sixth. Yep. I went in. So, so I went, so to kind of wrap up on the fifth. So I get up in that stand and another little side note that, that wasn't captured on camera um, where I parked at um, like a neighbor or someone that was hunting the same spot, they would figure out when I was parking there and they would drive their truck down and they would start like shooting like pistol rounds wow. to try to like really like, up, to like screw up my hunt or whatever. So I'm like, I'm calling people and I'm like, can you, can you target shoot like on public land here in Iowa during hunting season? They're like, no. So then I tried to get a hold of some conservation officers and they they must have been on call because they didn't answer my call. And I called my good friend Nicole Larson, the, the couple that I was talking about earlier, because right. she actually hunted the same spots that I was. So she kind of like dropped me some pins and kind of gave me a direction and like her and I would have like a powwow every night. She's like, all right, what did you see? What did you, you know, what's going on? What's the conditions? Like what's going on? So she, so I tell her like, what's going on. She'd be like, all right, you should go do this or go do that. Or, you know, we, we just strategize. Like I'm still trying to have that deer camp, but from afar. So with the whole texting and cell phones and cell cams, like it's kind of nice to have that. Cause you know, when you are by yourself, you still can like communicate and strategize and right. There's, there's another guy that was just north of me. So I'd, I'd communicate with him and he'd be like, well, I've never hunted this property, but I would do this or do that. So I had those two key players in the back of my pocket. So anyway, so these guys come down, they start shooting pistol rounds and I'm on the phone freaking out, trying to figure out, I'm like, is this legal? Like, what do I do? Do I get out? Whatever. So I called Nicole and she's like, dude, you only got like an hour left to light. You might as well just stick it out. So I didn't see, so I got in there at like, so I, I left at 10 was I got out of the woods at like 1030, got back in. I was probably in by like one o'clock, I think. And I didn't see a deer till literally like the last half hour. And I only saw one deer, but the deer that I saw was my target deer. Oh, there you go. So he heard, so he heard the shooting going on. He just stayed in his bed longer and just committed to going to food later. And I was there, I was good. I was good at shooting right then and there because he was coming through. He's going to go through a shooting hole. It would have been about a forty-five yard shot, but unfortunately, he just paralleled some branches, and I couldn't get a shot off. And I knew I had low camera light, so I was like, "Well, okay, we'll call it a blessing in disguise." Right. But he he's still in the same area. He instead of just taking the one door that I needed him to take, he took the secondary door. That's right. So I'm like, all right. So that's three encounters I had with this deer, and I've only been there for two days. So going in November 6th now, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do an all-day sit. I'm sitting in this spot, but I know it's going to be 85 degrees. I'll do a little bit of calling, a little bit of rattling, but I'm not going to get aggressive because they're just, they don't have that cold snap yet to get all fired up and 
to go around and kick other bucks butts you know right so i didn't see my first deer until about probably like 11 11 30 maybe nooner and i'm like all right i see it's, it's a good eight point and he's getting closer and getting closer and i got the binos on and i'm like i don't know but let's just get ready so i get the cameras rolling and i grab my bow and watching this deer come in and he literally comes in at about like 15 18 yards and i remember like going to full draw on him and i'm like nope like i just can't do it even though even though he would have been my biggest deer to date biggest deer to date and i still passed him because and the reason why i passed him is because i seen those two other deer that were way bigger than he was and i had a cold front coming in on monday you you had the opportunity and the chance to to, to you know to move forward with it and well, i tell you you got nine out of ten people would have not done that Oh, oh I, I guarantee you everybody would have, would have hammered down on that deer and would gladly punched their tag. That's right. Yeah, I would have. have. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I would have definitely been stoked to shoot that deer, but I knew I, I just had all the cards in my favor and in my hand. Like every, the stars were aligning. I just needed to give it time. That's right. So I let that deer go. I had awesome pre-roll, great footage of that deer. Like I just, I still remember to this, like my heart's just like beating out of my chest. And I'm like, this is like a three, four year old deer, 130 inch, 140 inch eight point. I'm like, nope, gotta let him go. So I let him, so I let him pass and he goes up the bluff and I film him going away. And, and then I don't see anything until, or I don't see or hear anything until about like four quarter after four, I hear like commotion going up on top of the bluff and I start to see white antlers and I pull the binos up and I'm like, okay, it's a 10 pointer. Okay. Does he got a little kicker going off on the G2? He's got, he's got a little kicker going off the G2. Okay. Is he weak on the right side on his four? Yup. And I'm like, I know what deer it is. I'm killing this deer. And he's coming exact with the wind that I had. That was the way he was going to come in. And that's exactly the way he came in and he committed. And this is where I wish I had a camera guy with me because the pre-roll of this would have been absolutely ridiculous. Like, cause he's just one of those wider frame deer and the way he's just kind of like walking with the hinge and swiveling his head. And like, you can see a little bit of that through my POV cameras, but we're punched in like pretty hard right. on the post side of things, which there's still 4k cameras, but the more that you punch in it gets a little pixelated and stuff, but you can still see the frame of him and the way his body language he's coming in and I'm just like, Oh my goodness, here we go. It's, it's going to happen. Like make or break. And I just remember like, I'm literally like starting to go into convulsions and I took a deep breath and I just like shut down. I just go numb and I just go straight into kill mode. Like the adrenaline like went away and he gets behind this, this group of trees and I got my tactic cams rolling and I got the pin on his chest cavity. He gets behind those trees. I go to full draw and it's literally it's so quiet there's not even a breeze blowing like you can literally hear a mouse fart from like two miles away <laughs> and everybody's gonna be like all right we're gonna stop this deer man and i'm like nope we're not doing this deer we're just gonna wait for him to take the closest leg to me put it forward and we're hammering down so he goes behind the tree i go to full draw and as soon as my pin gets on his chest cavity and that front leg goes forward i just hammer on him and i hear that watermelon pop and i'm like oh my goodness and literally, he runs fifty yards behind me and piles up. I yeah, wait, wait a minute now. Hold there, on. Yeah. Let's, let's let's say it wasn't just. Oh my goodness! It was a sheer over emotion, emotion dry a drain from Andrew. And, and everyone listening to this, you go watch this video. And I'm telling you, I I'm I, I'm an emotional guy. I get fired up for people, and I get you know in those moments, and I put myself in those positions. And when I saw you 
overcome with that dude i was i was sitting well, there with you i, I love that and you, i'm so glad you shared that when you go to youtube and you type in uh i think it's what's iowa public land deer on Pub- deer society public land dream hunt public land dream hunt when you go there public. your picture on there the first thing you see is like the emotion on your face yes. before, oh, yeah. that's what it's, you're clicking it's, on it's probably it's probably the most ridiculous thumbnail that deer society has on their, their youtube channel <laughs> it may be no, I, you call it ridiculous i call it i call it the most uh probably characteristic I, it's the one that that exudes that raw pure joy that every deer hunter that gets to experience that gets to put out there and that's the key thing that, that through this whole story that's the one piece of that. The deer's great. Don't get me wrong. I would. I'm, I'm blown away by the deer, and anyone will be. But that you letting people experience that with you. You know what? You him. know what I've taken out of this podcast, though, with you, Andrew, is 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 it's not on that video. It's everything that led up to it, and everything that happened that you don't see on video. Right. You you had this perfect contact to, for a perfect hunting place, and, and that that was gone. And then you go down there and these people are shooting guns and it's just everything was a hurdle for you and you were able to get over it. And that's, that's where that emotion comes from. I mean, people, people let stuff like that beat them down all the time and, and you've done a good job of keeping on going. Oh yeah. I mean, there's times where I'm like, what am I doing? Like, this is not going to happen. This is absolutely ridiculous. You're throwing away your money. Like, I'm just like, all right, just, you just got to overcome that and just literally like trust your gut. I think you got feeling and, and I trust the gut all the way through that whole entire hunt. Like I was just making moves purely like on a gut instinct, but also like it was, I was able to justify it with the moves that I was making. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people need to understand what you're, what you're telling a story on here is it can be very frustrating to deal with public land hunting. It can be very frustrating to going out of state. And when one plan doesn't come together, it doesn't mean it's over. It just means you have to adapt and overcome and make. And I'm assuming you still talk to those guys that you you met on the public land. The, did you stay? Oh the yeah, absolutely. I talk. I don't talk to them as much as I used to, just because I I'm not going to draw a tag for quite some time. But you know, we still. I I was following them through all their hunting season, and they're giving me updates and they sent me pictures. Some of the guys shot stuff. Some some of them didn't shoot stuff. But um, yeah, I still talk to those guys. You know, as much as I can and when I'm allowed to. Cause they're, they're great guys, you know, and they're, you know, they drop me questions and now kind of like the cat's out of the bag. Like they know like what I do for a living and, you know, right. just, they try to pick my brain and they're like, Andrew, where should I go hunt on this wind? And I'm like, well, all right, okay, go hunt over <laughs> here, go hunt over there. Like, you know, cause I'm going to be nice to them because they help me with, with my success. How did again, you going back again, going back to that, like quote, like, you know, it's it's easier if we just all work together because we'll all succeed quicker and faster versus just trying to fight against each other. How'd you get the deer out? Uh, it's funny because where he actually piled up, he actually ran closer to a pick cornfield where I could just drive my truck right up to it. Nice. <laughs> so you what, did you pull, did you put a tape on that deer? Yep. He so he let's pull up the paperwork here. Giant. So he gross he grosses one fifty one and five eighths, and then he notes that Pope and Young at one forty seven and an eighth. Very nice, very nice, beautiful buck. Uh, what was it? His inside spread was twenty and an eighth. Um, what was his beams? 
that mass that he he didn't have as much mass out on the ends what hurt him on this yeah on i mean well he's right here i got him right here Oh, he's beautiful. That is a beautiful deer. I love those long beams. What was it? 23 and a half, 24 inch beams? So beams were, where is it? Here? 24 and 23 and 3 eighths. Yeah, beautiful deer. So really, honestly, the only thing that really killed them was the short four ear. Yeah. And then just a couple of circumference measurements and then that extra like kicker off on his two ear. But otherwise, he was pretty much like a symmetrical deer all through and through. So awesome deer, man. Yeah. Hey Andrew. Hey Andrew, as we're as we're uh getting down to the wire here, man. Um I always end this thing with a couple questions. And I think you may answer this with a kind of something you've already said, but you may not may take a different path. But what's a piece of advice that you would share with the uh listeners for an outdoor piece of advice? An outdoor advice. As far as like just like general or yeah. like something specific or yeah, just general. I just, honestly, it's going to be totally cliche, but just keep trusting your gut. Yeah. Cause literally yeah. I would not be where I am today as far as, you know, from not only like a hunting standpoint and shooting, you know, a great public land deer, but also as far as like a career bound thing, like you just got to keep trusting your gut and like just trusting yourself. Yeah. That's, you know, like I said, it's totally cliche, but, you know, but it also helps if you're still single, don't have kids, ain't married and all this other <laughs> jazz to it. It may, it may be cliche, but it's, it ties back into the story from the very beginning to where you are now. I mean, it's, it's call it cliche, but I call it a, a passion. Yes, right. Cause I knew, I knew what I wanted and I knew what I wanted to do and I set my goals and obviously my goal was to shoot a Pope and young deer. So Come hell, come hell or high water, I was going to do it one way or another. And just the way that I took things and did things, that was the way that I needed to do it. Yeah. What are you most thankful for, man? Most thankful for? Well, I would have put a guy in the spot. <laughs> Honestly, just just for the opportunities that I've had and like people that I've met, because really, I I probably would not be where I am today if I didn't meet the people that I met and just having the opportunities that I had, because it, I, I can't say like, all right, I'm sole solely the only person that, you know, made this possibility happen. No, there's a bunch of other key players that help get me to where I am today. And I just kind of always go back to my roots and make sure I give thanks to the people that I always, you know, help build me from where I'm at from my roots. I love it. I think that's the key thing for, for, Anybody that listens to this story can can tell that you're always one that's going to put the people that surrounded you and have been a part of your success at the forefront of the story. I go all the way back to the beginning when you, you started talking about um, the Larsons and what they were able to do for you, and then you talked about Pat and, and, and Nicole and being able to to go through all of the progressions you made you put yourself in a position in a bow shop at 13 years old and learned a craft that enabled you to be able to work on equipment for people and you you take through the stories and you just continually worked your way up by putting yourself I, I think that's something we always try to do in our in our show is is name the show and I keep thinking sitting here what would be a good name for this show and it's really just opportunity I mean you put yourself in an opportunity everything that you did you didn't you didn't do it without some form of research and knowledge basis, but 
seize that opportunity. And I, that's the key thing that you've always seemed to do throughout your career. So is yeah, there, and it, go ahead. And it kind of, it kind of goes back to a hunting standpoint. You can only kill the deer that you're, that you're able to like hunt in your area. So if you want to shoot like a Pope and young deer, but on your property, you only have like 110, 115 inch deer. That's all you're going to kill. So if you want something bigger, you need to go where that specific deer is going to be. And Iowa just presented that opportunity for me. That's right. I that's, knew, that's, I, knew I, I knew I wanted it. I knew I was good. I knew it was going to be expensive, but I was, that's, that's just what I wanted. Anything fun is going to be expensive. That's right. Is that your next goal? Andrew is to chase something bigger or just maybe a different state or what's your goal going forward? Um, Obviously I want to try to shoot something bigger, but let's be real. I'd be happy to shoot 150 inch deer every year. Yeah. It may take me too. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody else is going to listen to this. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So I'm good, man. I, I appreciate you coming on here, taking the time. I know it was kind of going back and forth and deer season had us all tied up, but, um, now we're freed up and, um, I guess you about to do, start doing some shed hunting. Yeah. I, yep. Just going to start doing some shed hunting and then we're actually starting to edit some uh, uh, sportsman channel shows right now too so we're trying to get our workflow started sooner than later so we can kind of be ahead of that and so then we can once shed season comes more prime we can do more shed hunting okay okay well i'm good man well nick you know tonight it's been a, it's been a great story i know when we watched the first video it was an opportunity for us to get to see the side of passion that we all like to you know express and we like to put out there and we love to see people share with us and at the final spit of the night tonight, I want to take it all the way back to when Andrew first started in the industry. He didn't have a start like a lot of us did with uh, the hunting side of things. He kind of worked his way up through the ranks, and he found his own place, and he was able to find his own pathway and forge that pathway through a passion that he had for setting goals and being able to achieve them in the long run. From the time when he first started at the bow shop at 13 years old to where he's at now at 30 years old, being on one of the biggest platforms in the deer hunting community as far as the industry goes with the Deer Society, he was able to put a video out that there's probably more over the next few years and the more that this story gets out there are going to be people take from it. It's okay to share your passion. It's okay to share that emotion. And it's okay to be who you are at the core because at the end of the day, I feel like Andrew's the kind of guy that's going to go out of his way to help somebody, and that's why the people have went out of the way to help him. So if you want to check out the story of the Public Land Dream Buck, head over to YouTube. You can search for it on the Deer Society. Uh, you'll see Andrew's bright, shining face there and, uh, as, oh, he's, yeah. uh, as he's Here's on the front all. cover of it. And, uh, you can, <laughs> that's right, that's right, and you can – Check out and follow along with him uh, over on Sightline Productions on Instagram to see what all the new stuff that they're going to be coming out with. Make sure you, you give them a follow, give them a check out, and uh, I'm excited to watch his his story unfold, and I'm, I'm excited for this relationship that we've been able to build. So, Andrew, I want to thank you again for taking the time, and uh, we look forward to talking to you real soon. Absolutely. And then I'm just going to throw out one more shout-out. Don't only – also follow Sightline Production, but make sure you follow Almond Eye Productions. Almond Eye Productions. Almond Eye Productions. That's the guys that, that's us that produce the Deer Society content. Make sure you send that link over to us. We'll link it up in the story on the uh, on the drop when we get it, and we'll put uh, put the link to the YouTube video on there. So, um, Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Andrew. And, and like we always say, Nick, tonight's been a, an opportunity for us to share in a memory, and uh, 
we want to remind everyone that's listening to uh, to smile as you go and don't forget mount the memories. <laughs>